Take your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. On July the 8th, 2013, there was a man by the name of Jordan Graham that failed to show up for work. He had been recently married. In fact, it had been a week before that he had been married, and he had been back to work uh, a couple of days after the wedding and after the weekend. He just didn't show up for work. So friends and at work, called home to see where he was at, and his wife said, I don't know where he's at, I have no clue as to where he's at, and he's gone out, uh, he went uh, walking on a trail, can't find him, whatever, and police began to investigate, well, lo and behold, his wife Jordan uh, was out on a trail and found her husband hundreds of feet off of a cliff in a ravine in Glacier National Park. They come to, finally, as investigation went on, and this wife, Jordan, continued to give information to the police, they began to realize that all the information they were giving her was a hoax, that he hadn't gone off on this trail by himself. They had video evidence that she came to the park with him and the like, and so, they began to question her, and she finally confessed to the fact that they had had an argument, that she had gotten to the point after a week that she wasn't sure she wanted to be married. And in the discussion, supposedly, uh, he was upset and had her hand, and she got mad and shoved him off the cliff. Eventually, over time, it was come to the conclusion that by testimony and otherwise, that she probably just shoved him over the cliff. You say, that's a tragedy. It is. And what we're about to read in Genesis chapter 3 is the same kind of tragedy. What you have is a, a story of humanity who has been given everything. We've gone through for the last couple of weeks as we've started off our study in the book of Genesis that God took a, well, what chaos, we would describe as chaos. Nothing going on, no form, no shape, no living things in the universe. And suddenly what he does through creation in a six-day event makes a creation that has shape and form and fills it with life. The chief of that, as we looked at last week in Genesis chapter 2, was the creation of man and woman. That God took man of the dust of the earth. And what uh, he did was breathed into to man the breath of life. And as we read the story that eventually is, well, man is there. He realizes there's no one like him as he's naming the animals. And God had said that this is not good, that man be alone. And so what God does is put Adam into a deep sleep and out of a, a rib, out of him, makes his wife. And you look at chapter 2 and everything's perfect. I mean, this is what God intended for us as human beings, as men and women, uh, to have a part in, is a perfect place. 
The place that was filled with perfect provisions, a perfect job, a perfect responsibility, uh, and all of this that God took care of everything for man and woman. I mean, you would dream about living a life like this. But you get to this point in Genesis chapter 3 where mankind gives this all up. And it's not without help that they give it all up. They receive a push and a direction from someone that we know as Satan or the devil. See, what we have here in this passage of Scripture as we look at Genesis chapter 3 is just simply this thought that humanity is tempted to sin. Okay, this is the pattern that you're going to see for 6,000 years of human history that mankind, that humanity is tempted to sin when pushed by Satan, the flesh, the world around them into questioning God's word. We had in that song, there's a problem that we have with God and that's trust. We don't trust him, who he is, what his character is. But what you see here is that from the start of human history, this has been the difficulty that mankind has faced, that they have fallen time and time again. And it's with the help of someone pushing them along in the direction that will bring them, as the scripture says, dying thou shalt die or thou shalt surely die. There's a separation that's caused by sin. Separation in relationships, as we'll see next week uh, when it comes to Adam and Eve. Separation uh, um, from Adam and Eve from God. And eventually what's going to happen to them is going to be a separation of their body physically from their soul and spirit. There's all sorts of death, separation that takes place as the result of sin. But what we see here is what Satan does is that he gets mankind on a course to their own destruction. And the scripture tells us that we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, it makes this statement. And so for us, what we need to be aware of is how humanity fell. How did we get to the point where sin is a part of every person's life? And what does Satan do to get us to continually fall on our face or shove us, in a sense, over a cliff of where we're sinning time and time and time and time again? His tactics haven't changed. He's been doing this for 6,000 years. So it's good for us to, to look at this story this morning and get an understanding of how we got where we're at and why we got to the point where we need a Savior one to rescue us. Where did sin come from? And as you start the story, then Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to simply read the story as it is set up here. Verse 1 says this, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and then it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desired to be desired to make one wise she took of the fruit thereof did eat gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat just looking at this we need to start off and realize that satan is the deceiver and destroyer of humanity that's god's commentary on satan in john chapter 8 and verse 44 that he's a deceiver and he is a murderer he's been a liar since the beginning of human history but the question comes up we're reading this and we look at this and go it says here not satan but a certain serpent tempts eve and you go well maybe it's not satan maybe it's not uh him well we have commentary on this you get to revelation chapter 12 and you find this that god makes this statement and it's this statement that old serpent what the devil that old serpent the one who tempted uh eve and you say so did satan appear as a serpent did he use a serpent we're not to hold And the question then comes, okay, well, how in the world did Satan get here? How does he become part of the story? Uh, realize this, as we come to the story, it's not really God's uh, intent at this point to explain all the details about Satan, but for us to understand what this is. How does Satan get here? Satan is an angel, though he's a fallen one. He's an angel created to serve in the presence of God. You say, when were the angels created? The best account that we possibly have is that they were created before the universe that we know. When Job, uh, as you read in Job 38, when Job has questioned God time and time again on why God is doing what he's doing in his life, God comes and responds with this opening statement, and he says this, who is this that darkeneth counsel? And by words without knowledge, gird up thy loins like a man, for I demand of thee and answer me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon the foundations thereof are fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? He's basically going, who was there? Were you there, Job? But then he makes a statement. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. It seems that you have angels that are a part of praising God when this event takes place. That the sons of God, which is a reference throughout Scripture uh, to angels, and the morning stars, which are also uh, statements about Scripture or about angels and throughout the Scripture, that angels were a part of this. That they were part of this but you say when did satan fall we don't know there are two passages of scripture and you could take a look at these because we do not have time to thoroughly go through these passages but you have a passage in ezekiel chapter 28 that seems to be addressing one of the leaders of the world but it, it's addressing not the leader of the world but the power behind that leader the spiritual power and it talks about this one who was lifted up because of beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of brightness. I will cast thee to the ground, as God says. But you have a very clear passage that's probably referring to Satan. 
in Isaiah chapter 14 where this statement is made, O Lucifer, Son of the morning, how art thou fallen from heaven? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. And it doesn't finish in our text, but we would say this, the most high God. See, Satan seemed to be a responsible angel for protecting the throne of God. As you read in Ezekiel chapter 28, that may have been his responsibility there to lead perhaps in the worship of God because he was one who had the ability to make, well, musical tones with his voice. But whatever the case is, he got lifted up in pride and made this statement in his heart, I will be like the Most High God. And you say, what did God do at that point? It was at that point that God cast Satan out. And there seems to be, as we read in the book of Revelation, that there was a third of the angels that followed Satan. Didn't want to serve God. Didn't want to be a part of that. They wanted to, to do their own thing. And as such, they were separated from the ability to serve God. And you say, well, what was their desire after that? To destroy whatever God had created. And you say, well, where does, where does Satan start? He starts with the chief of God's creation. The one that was created to reflect the image of God in this universe. The one who was created to have dominion over the earth as a reflection of what God's rule is like in all of the universe. And Satan comes to these two individuals in the garden and what he does is that he attempts to trap them and destroy them. There's a word there as you read in the account in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. It says that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. You say, what's this word subtle mean? Well, in this context, it means just simply, simply this, shrewd or crafty. Those are not terms you normally use for a good person. You think of someone who's plotting and planning and this type of thing to gain advantage of other individuals. This is a word that you'd sometimes connect with a villain and a criminal. But do understand that this term, subtle, is something that God says is a good thing at times. Proverbs chapter 1 says that those that are simple and ignorant, they need to gain subtlety. Now, understand what craftiness means. Craftiness has got the idea of being wary or of knowing where traps lay and dangers lurk. You're aware of danger. And Satan is very well aware of what is evil and what is good. He's aware of all these things. And what he's doing is he's using his craftiness to get... Adam and Eve to fall into those dangers and those traps and those things that will destroy them. I mean, you would hope, and I use this in a good context, 
Just think about this. You have a battlefield and you have a minefield that has been laid out. You hope that the engineer that is going through that minefield is crafty. That he figures out where the different mines are at so that he doesn't hurt himself. That he's careful. He's observant. He sees things. He uses equipment and the like. Well, what Satan is, he knows where all those things are at and all the dangers are at. And what he's doing is he's going, okay, let's see if I can get these unwary individuals to destroy themselves. He's crafty. And when you talk about this in this story initially you realize that you're dealing with someone with great knowledge he's the chief of the angels so he's got a vast knowledge at his disposal and what he's doing is he's trying to destroy the chief of god's creation and as you look at the story here you you go through and you find i've had this question in my mind why is Eve talking to a snake? Seems kind of strange and, and the like. You, I, I know some of us do talk to our, our pets and that type of thing, but we're, we're, we're talking different here, okay? That there's an actual conversation and language going on that is going on here, and Eve doesn't seem to really stop, question that this is going on. But sadly, what's going on here is that in this conversation you have eve listening to the creation rather than to the creator see what man had named in the previous chapter he'd gone through and named all the animals and had this responsibility to do this showing that he had authority over creation what mankind is now doing is listening to the creation rather than to listening to what god is saying you've got a problem here mankind is beginning to go okay well maybe there's other possibilities out here so just starting off here you have this introduction to satan though we have very little about who the serpent is here we do have information throughout the rest of scripture that warns us about him and that he is crafty he knows where the traps are at. He knows where the dangers lurk. And what Satan does when he initially comes to Adam and Eve, and this is what he's going to do to you, to each one of you when he is trying to tempt you to sin, the first thing that he's going to do is this, is that he is going to get you to question the character of God who he is, what he's declared himself to be, and what he has declared. He's going to get you to question the character of God. As you go through this story and you look at this, the, the problem is, is that I wish we did have sound here. Because part of the story going on, there are elements of sound that would indicate this is well, not being said the way God wanted to, in the sense that as you hear the very first statement of Satan, he says this, uh, yea, hath God said. He's not saying, yes, God has said this. No, it's more of, yeah, did, did God really, did he, did he really, you know, the, the question mark in the tone. That's what's going on here. And you have this conversation that Satan is questioning. 
He is getting and raising doubt. It's interesting as you look at the three times in the scripture or in this passage that the word of God is quoted, it's not appropriately quoted. Once it's questioned in a misleading way, once it's paraphrased with major changes, and once it's just flatly out denied what God has said. God's word is older than Satan's lies, but Satan's lies are so shrewdly expressed that they are oftentimes more effective. See, what Satan questions, and here's the three things that you will find oftentimes when you're tempted, that you will question in your own mind. You may not go through the whole process, but this is in the back of your, your head as you go into sin. First of all, Satan questions the goodness of God. He questions the goodness of God. Look at how it states it there in verse number one. He says this, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. See, how he words it is this, is he's not saying, look, you've got all these trees, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of trees that you can eat from. No, he goes, do you realize that God's not letting you eat of one tree? How horrible of God. He won't let you do that. And so what you have right from the start here is that he's pushing the boundary line of saying, okay, God's not good. He gave you a prohibition. He gave you one rule. As we said, that's the perfect prohibition. Can you imagine just having one rule to have to follow? In all of your life, that's what Adam and Eve had when they were in the garden. Don't eat of that tree. What Satan does initially is to just simply say this, God is not good. Or as we are saying this morning, that you have this as a paraphrase of Satan. God is not always good. Okay, he might be good sometimes, but you know what? He's really not always good. He's not always only good. No, he's not that way. And so right from the start, there's this hint where he's, he's quoting and talking about what God has done, but he's questioning whether or not God's really good to you. And that's what he gets Adam or Eve here to question as he comes to Eve. You know, the second thing that Satan will get you to question is you are being tempted to sin. It's this, is that whether or not God is righteous or questioning God's righteousness. See, as Satan goes along here, the woman explains and she adds actually to the prohibition. I mean, God had said, you shall not eat of the fruit. And she adds this, well, we're not supposed to touch it either. Well, that's not what God said in Genesis chapter 2. You're just not supposed to eat of it. But she goes, well, we're not allowed to touch it or even or eat it or even touch it. And she explains this. She says, we're not to eat of it, neither touch it. Verse 3, lest ye die. Now, she even paraphrases this kind of statement because she's hinting at it because God says, you will surely die. She just kind of says, well, we, we might die. Okay, that's a possibility here. So she's already beginning to question the fact of God's goodness here, but what Satan does and pushes her over the edge into questioning whether God is truly this way, he said, look at verse 4, serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Really? Do you think God would kill you for eating a piece of fruit do you think god would be so harsh and so cruel and so mean and so just horrible that he would bring judgment upon you 
See, realize this, that God is righteous has the idea in the word itself that God is just and God will carry out judgment. If God says something, he holds himself to that standard and he will carry out what he said. He says, listen, if a soul sins, they shall surely die. So for God to be righteous, what is he going to do? If someone sins, they are going to die. For God to stay in character, to be who he is, to be righteous, if he's declared something, he has to hold to it. You know what Satan says? God's not righteous. He won't, he won't do that. He's not going to judge for sin, not for a piece of fruit, just you eating it. It's okay. And so he questions God's righteousness. The third thing that Satan will get you to question and got Eve to question is this, is that he got Eve to question God's holiness. You know, what do you mean by God's holiness? We sang that this morning, holy, holy, holy. The three, way, three times of stating the fact that God is holy is to make sure that you understand there is no one like him. Okay, sometimes that word holiness has got the idea of without sin and that. But what we have when that word holy is being used by the angels, it's talking about this, that God is unique in the universe. There is no one like him. And what you have when Satan comes to Eve here and says, ye shall not surely die, he gives a line of reasoning that questions whether God is unique. Look at verse number five. He says this, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as... Okay, and you have it in, your, your, in probably your translation there, as gods. But realize that word gods is the word Elohim. Same word that when we re start our Bible off, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What he's suggesting is this. He knows that ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. He simply says this. You know, God's not good, and he's not, going to he's, he's not going to judge you for petty things like that. Why he's keeping this from you is because you'll be just like him. He's holding something back from you that you'll be like him. He is not unique in the universe. You ought to have what he has. You ought to have the unique power he has of being the creator of the universe. That you are, and this is the problem of humanity, that you're your own God. That you are the center of the universe. That you have the right to make all the decisions because you are God. Satan gets... Eve to question this. He holds out divinity to mankind. God was not holy, but merely holding man back from what man fully could be. Like God, the creator of the universe, with all the control and power. The sad thing about this is Satan is questioning God's goodness and righteousness and holiness that Eve is playing along with the conversation. As one commentator put it, that this is the most disastrous dialogue in human history. She's playing along with the conversation, but she's not saying what you find out later. Okay, we're going to get to this. 
But what she should have done was this, as you find the second Adam from above, Christ, when he's tempted by Satan, what does he do? He directly quotes the scripture, what God has said, and in the end says this, get away from me, Satan, or get thee hence, Satan. Go away. Eve doesn't do that. What she begins to do is that she begins to mull over what Satan has suggested in her mind, that God's not good, that God's really not going to judge for sin, and you know what? what? You have the right to be like God. You should, in fact, take his responsibilities up. He's not as unique as he says he is. And what you find is this, is that Eve does not stop there. She questions the character of God, and she is set up to fall into sin, just like the rest of us, when we question whether or not God's good, or whether or not he's really going to judge for sin, or that maybe we should take up some of God's responsibility and be the center of the universe to put ourselves on the throne. So what Satan does, you see, thirdly, is this, is that Satan pushes humanity to go beyond the restrictions that God has placed or the limitations that God has placed. What Satan does is that he uses the world around Eve. You go, well, what's the world around her? This tree that's there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve, after listening to what Satan has to say, is sitting there in this world looking at this, and her own flesh begins to go over boundary lines. What you find is this, is that good is no longer rooted in what God says, but in what people think is desirable. They distort what is good into what is evil. See, what's going to happen at this point after the boundary lines of who God is are kind of blurred, changed, or questioned, that barrier to the flesh is suddenly wide open. 1 John 2 and verse 16, or verse 15 gives us commentary on this. What Eve is going to do in sinning is this, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passed away, the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. See, when Eve is here, she has certain things in her own flesh, her own makeup, that are suddenly being drawn away and enticed. James chapter 3, or James chapter 1, I think the ladies may have talked about this passage here this morning, but it says this, let no man say, or we would say this, when no man, woman say when she is or he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own, his own lusts and enticed. That's like a bait on a hook of fishing. As some of you go fishing. I don't do this, but you have lures. And what do fishermen do? They put all sorts of things on that hook to make it look great. And they pull it along in the water. And, and that fish is kind of following along. It's going, okay, okay, I think. I, and, and, and then what happens? There's a biting down. 
So it is with Satan. What he does is that he kind of pulls a lure along that appeals to what we're like. See, what God put in us are good things that would help even Adam and Eve function in life. I mean, we talk about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look at how it works out in verse number 6. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and she saw this, that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. We'll talk about this in a second, what this is. And that it was desired to make one wise the pride of life. See, we have certain things in us that are God-given things. What Satan will do is try to lure us to go beyond the boundaries that God gives to us as we fulfill those things in our own life. See, when we talk about the lust of the flesh, I'm going to alliterate this for you. We're talking about appetite. We're talking about appetite. There are things in this life that God gives to us as far as desires of our own flesh, our own body, that are good within certain boundary lines. Okay? God has put a desire in us to sleep. You say, is that a good thing? It's a very good thing. It helps your body repair. It helps you to relax from what may have gone on in the day. And God has put a desire in us to sleep. But do you realize you can push that boundary line of sleep? You know what the the scripture talks about in Proverbs? It calls a person that won't get off their bed, that they're hinged like a door to the bed. They can't get off of it. They just turn back and forth. They're called a sluggard. A slacker, we might use in our term. They're lazy. Do you realize that something that's good and beneficial, a person can go way beyond and get to the point where they're indulging in this beyond what they should be? Or we can do the same thing about food. You know, why do we eat? Because it's good for us and we like it. But do you realize the scripture also talks about the point that we can get to where it's gluttony? We're eating far too much. We're going way beyond what we should. Or if I was to to talk in this, that God has made marriage a wonderful thing and sex is a part of marriage. But you know what? The world is pulling on this, that it's okay outside the boundaries of marriage to indulge in this perfectly fine it's perfectly normal this is everything it's it's okay to do this because it's part of who you are it's part of your flesh and what satan does is he takes what is good the appetites we have that are good for functioning in life and what he tries to do is debate a person to go beyond the limits and the boundaries that god has set And so what Satan does is appeal to our appetite, the lust of the flesh. Satan will also appeal to this, uh, the lust of the eyes. And I'm going to put it this way, acquisition or acquisitions. I mean, how do you make decisions on things that you're going to buy? Now, 
if you're looking at candles and that type of thing, it might be, you know, you go out and, you know, we were at Frankfurt Fest yesterday and they had candles out there. I didn't sniff any of them. I was, you know, just wandering through uh, there because uh, I'd never been. But there's people, you know, they're opening it up and they're like, you know, they close it. And, you know, what are they doing? They're making judgment calls there. Whether I really like that smell or I really don't like that smell. Uh, hopefully this is the case when you buy a car or you buy a house that you typically take a look at it now in today's society i'm really getting nervous because people are just buying cars online and you know hey look the car looks great great i think it's going to be fine we'll buy it or as the housing market was moving there were people who had never been to houses and they were buying them but what does god give us our eyes for to make judgment calls you know, you look at something and go, that's bad. You know, if you open up a, a bag of potatoes and you open it up and you look at it and there's something mushy in there. And what do you suddenly judge? Not eating that. You know, it's good that you have your eyes to make judgment calls like that. But let's just go back to the thing of buying a car. Just think you've got a, a person who's coming right out of college and they have no money, but they have to get to work and they have to have some sort of vehicle to do this. And so they go down to the auto dealership and they go through there and they go, wow, look at all these wonderful cars. You know what? There's a brand new, bright red, shiny sports car over there. And I look at it and it's got everything on it and it is fantastic. But would it be a right decision for that person coming directly out of college with perhaps some debt and the like to buy the bright red shiny sports car when it would be more practical probably to go buy a used car that will get them from place to place as they pay off their debts? You kind of go, but that looks so nice there. See, God gives us our eyes to make decisions, but what Satan tries to get people to do is to acquire things beyond what they need or should have to their own destruction oftentimes. They get what they want, but it destroys them. And this is what Satan does. He has for the woman here, this fruit, it looks great. She's not supposed to eat it, but she thinks about it more and more. And she goes, that's really great fruit. And so what Satan will sometimes appeal to is our appetite or our desire to acquire acquisition. Or when it comes to this, that Satan will appeal to the pride of life. And I put it this way, to our sense of achievement. We all have desire to achieve. Okay, sometimes it comes in the workplace. You think about this. You want to do well. Why? Because when I do well, I get paid more. I get the acclaim of individuals because you're doing a good job. And is that a horrible thing? That you're working hard to achieve things? And the answer is absolutely nothing wrong with that. The problem with us achieving is for whom is the achieving being done? Is it for glorification of me? Or is it for the glory of God? 
That's the difference. It's not that achieving things are bad and wrong. God's put it in us or else we would never get anything accomplished. God's put it as part of our character, desire to achieve, accomplish things, do things. But the problem is, is when we start reflecting on it and going, look at how great I am, rather than look at how great God is in giving me this ability to do this or the opportunity, or the place to be able to do this. This is fantastic. You know, I don't you know, think about this much, but you do have sports figures at times where they come up and go, you did a fantastic do- job, and they start off with this. God be the glory. Because if I didn't have him, I would have not accomplished any of this. Now, I don't know what their backgrounds are or anything like that, but I'm going, okay. They've, they've, they've got the, the, the right perspective, but what's the problem when people say, you're doing great and you're doing fantastic and you're incredible in this, that we, yeah, it's, it's all about me. And see, for, for Eve here, it's desired to make one wise. She's going to be like God. Wow, that would be quite the achievement to be like God. I would, I would be like this. And as you remember what Satan said when he fell, I will be like the Most High God. Five times he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. That's the problem. God gives us the desire to achieve. That's right, for his glory. The problem is, is that too often we're appealed to achieve because we want glory for ourselves. These three things that are there, that are good things. God's put them in us as part of our character, as part of who we are. What Satan will do is use that and pull on that. And with a sin nature now, you realize this, that our flesh is a a Benedict Arnold. It betrays us all the time. It's a traitor. It loves the wrong things and will desire to go the wrong way. You see this whole thing where God's character's question, focus is taken off of who God is, suddenly the world around Eve is here to appeal to her, and what it does is it appeals to her flesh, and Satan holds this out. And she bites down. Literally. And she bites down on this fruit. She takes it and she gives it to her husband. The scripture says that she was deceived by the arguments as you read in 1 Timothy. Adam just goes ahead and does this. And as a result of this, the world tumbles out of control as far as man being able to run it. We'll look at this next week, all the consequences of sin that go on, but the most dire of it is that these individuals are suddenly separated from God. The fellowship that they had with them, they no longer walk with them in the garden. That's gone. And they start dying. And as you look at the consequences of this, you follow it through. These two people who have children, the first of two of their children, one of them's a murder and one of them's killed. You just follow it out. It's horrible. So we go through all of that and we could just simply say, you're sinners, you question God's character all the time, you let Satan do that, and that you are you know, letting your lusts pull you aside at all times because your flesh is a traitor and there's no hope for you. Have a nice day. 
But there is hope. And I want us to turn to Luke chapter 4. You say, why Luke chapter 4? Why did we look at that passage of Scripture? Well, think about this. We have the first Adam that sin enters into the world and death passes upon all men, Romans chapter 5 tells us. As a result of this, we're separated from God. We have death as part of what goes on in our, our life. And it talks about the first Adam doing this, but then it talks about a second Adam from above. You go, who's the second Adam? The only other human being to have a creation unique as a human being. He's born of a virgin. This Jesus who was God in eternity past but took upon him human flesh. Uh, And what he does is he comes and lives uh, a life that is perfect and without sin so that he can die on our cross to be a substitute. And as you look at the scriptures and you look at the book of Luke, what Luke is emphasizing is this, is that here you have one who is God in human flesh, and it emphasizes God's humanity who does all these things that we can pattern our life after. And Luke chapter 4 gives us something that we can pattern our life after. It gives us an example of what to do when Satan shows up. When Satan is tempting us, or as uh, we would, uh, <clears throat> or we would have Satan or his helpers are tempting us, there is a way to respond. The book of Luke is about Jesus as man, and this story that we have here is not in chronological order. If you want the order of the temptation, you read the account in Matthew chapter four. That's in chronological order because at the end of that temptation, Jesus says, get thee hence, get away from me, Satan. But this one in Luke chapter four is set up like what you find in the garden of Eden. The temptation set up this way. When you think about this story, as you read there in Luke chapter four and verse two, that Jesus was not just merely tempted one day. You read the account there, he's tempted for 40 days. And what we have is the highlight, the end of those temptations that Satan does in that 40-day time period. Jesus hungered, didn't have anything to eat. So verse number three, the devil said unto him, if thou be the son of God, so already there, question mark, you know, if you be the son of God, you know, yea, hath God said, really? Well, if you be the son of God, Command these stone that they be made bread. I mean, Jesus is hungry. You say, well, why doesn't he do that? He's got the power to change stones into bread. He could do that. Uh, he can speak things into existence by the word of his power. Uh, why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't he change stones into bread? He is hungry. Well, think about it. It's not part of God's plan for him. You say, what do you mean? God's got a plan of taking care of the bread for him. Really? Read the account in Matthew chapter 4 and you find at the end of this that the angels come and minister to him. They take care of his needs. He doesn't need this bread. And even though he's hungry, appetite, he doesn't go beyond what God has for him. God has for him that he's going to be taken care of by the angels just momentarily. And he responds with what? He responds in verse number four. Jesus answered and said, it is written. You go, why does it say it is written? Why is it written there? Because what he's doing is he's quoting the Old Testament. 
In fact, as you read through, he's quoting a book that probably you wouldn't have much memorized from. Deuteronomy. Actually quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse number 3. And he says this, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say because there's something more important. It's God's word. What he has to say is more important than even, as the psalmist says, my necessary food. And he answers this temptation to do, go beyond what your flesh wants and do what your flesh wants. And he says, listen, there's something important to have confidence in what God has to say about himself. Okay, so you get to that right off the bat. Lust of the flesh that Satan's appealing to. Verse 5. Then devil, or the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Okay, showed. Okay, what are we talking about here? Lust of the eyes. He sees all the kingdoms of the world in an instant. And so he's looking at all these kingdoms that he is trying to come and restore what's going on here on the earth. He's come here as a man to help reestablish what God originally intended for man, for mankind to rule this world in order. And he sees all these kingdoms that he's coming one day to subdue, and he is going to have to go through great trial to subdue them. And Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and then says this, if you just simply... Verse 6, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, to whomsoever I will give it. For if there, for, excuse me, verse 7, if thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. If you just simply fall on the ground and worship me, I'll let you have all the kingdoms that you're coming to set back up and rearrange what mankind has destroyed for the last, at this point, 4,000 years and hasn't done right. You're going to bring order because you'll be the ruler. I mean, it shortcuts the cross. He doesn't have to go through dying on a cross. That'd be wonderful to not have to go through that. It would shortcut that. But he realizes this, that can't be a possibility. Though he sees all the kings of the world and the possibility there, it's a possibility that God has not offered him. It's not part of God's plan. You say, well, what does God say? Jesus say here, verse number eight, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him alone only shalt thou serve. There's only one God worthy of worship. I'm only going to worship him. He is the only one worthy of worship. So he gives that as an example that I can't step across the lines of that. Lust of the eyes. There are certain boundaries that I'm not allowed to cross, and the Word of God makes clear what you're suggesting goes across the lines. You're saying that God's not unique. You look at the last one, and it's kind of a strange temptation, but you look at verse number 9. It says this, that Satan brought him to Jerusalem and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple. You go, what's that? It was a cliff on the corner of the temple that was hundreds of feet above the ground, right by a walkway where people would walk by. Satan takes him there and he says this, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down from hence, for it is written. Wait a second, this is, this is Satan speaking here. He's actually going to quote the scripture, and he does. 
If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time they dash thy foot against a stone. Say, what's he quote? He quotes Psalm uh, 91, verses 11 and 12, and he quotes it out of context, but he quotes it. Remember what Satan is doing when he's talking to Eve? He's actually quoting part of what God says questioningly and in the wrong context and the like he does the same thing here what is he saying jesus jump off the the, this this cliff really that you have here this pinnacle of the temple and you'll well the scripture says you'll be fine god will take care of you and nothing will go wrong and what will be really impressive is when you don't get crushed when you get to the bottom you're okay everyone will come running to you and go wow that people will be drawn to him that way. And remember what Jesus said would draw men to himself? John makes this very clear multiple times. When he was what? Not exalted in himself, but he was lifted up, exalted on a cross. That was the way that he was going to have men run to him, come to him, because he was put up on a cross and satan saying shortcut that make it easier just be a show-off and do this and you'll draw people to yourself and so you have the lord responding he quotes deuteronomy 6 and verse 16 thou shalt not tempt the lord thy god and he quotes the scripture thus defeating this pride of life the desire to achieve without bringing glory to God or, and going in the boundaries that God wants. Jesus, in all three occasions, the second Adam, the second man from above, what he does is gives us a pattern and how to respond to temptation. You know, what's the response? You have complete confidence in what God says. You know what God says, you know what he's like, and you don't move from that. When a person gets their attention off of who God is and what his character is like and begins to question those things, they are ripe for temptation. Their flesh will go right along with this, questioning who God is and going their own way. And what you have for us, what Adam and Eve didn't do, was to pay attention to what God said. They twisted it, they limited it, they ignored it, and then their flesh went whatever course it was going to go on because they didn't know what God's Word said. Thinking, and we aren't going to do this at the end because we have the Lord's Supper here, but uh, we have that song, that old hymn of the faith that says, How firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord is built for your faith upon his what excellent word see if adam and eve had just paid attention to what god had said and not let satan change what they think move them from that the story might have been different but it didn't but it serves as a warning to us. Satan's going to do this time and time and time again. If he did it to Adam and Eve, and he did it to Jesus who came to earth as a human being, 
And you have written in the Scriptures in 1 John this admonition to individuals like us that we have to be aware. And James tells us that we're going to be enticed and drawn away of our own lusts. If we get off from what the Word of God says, we will fall. Now the question comes for us, or really the answer for us, is, I already did. I already have. Is there any hope? Well, we're going to get to that next week in detail, but in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, even though they had failed, God promised one that was going to come to have victory over sin and the consequences of sin. What Satan had started, he is going to put an end to that through a Savior. As we get ready here to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper, what He did on the cross and remind ourselves of it, we just need to remind ourselves, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners just like me. He knew that we failed. He knew Adam and Eve failed. He knew mankind would fail. And the only way of rescue was to offer Himself up as the perfect sacrifice on the cross to pay for our sins. But what does he do? He gives us a pattern once we've accepted what he has done on the cross to try and reflect what he's like. We reflect it by trusting God at his word, holding to it when Satan comes to us to tempt us. We go, no, God's word clearly says this. This is what he's like. I'm not even going to listen to your suggestions. But when you do fail... You go back to the Savior and you go, you've died for me, my salvation is secure, I'm coming and just claiming the blood of Christ as 1 John 1, 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll forgive us as part of His family. Once you're saved, He'll take care of your sin. But as we celebrate now, we just remind ourselves of the great gift God's given to us in Jesus Christ.